Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. So we take a break from our Ruth series that we, Lord willing, will continue next week. We pick up today in Psalm 127. I invite you to turn there with me. The Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. God is the master builder and we are his workers. Psalm 127 hones in on the biblical vision of this great enterprise of God by which you and I are dignified as his image bearers to be co-laborers this this Sanctity of Life Sunday. We revisit this theme to strengthen our convictions and our commitment to the preservation of human life that all people might live and flourish as God intends. Please follow as I read Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Father, once again I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Scholars debate over whether Solomon actually wrote this psalm. The great builder of the temple and husband of a multitude of wives, the father of more children than he could possibly name, hones in on this message and challenging us that in all of our endeavors claiming that they are in in vain unless the Lord is in it. True counsel that he failed to heed himself. Children love to build things. My own children over the years have built magnificent buildings with Legos, various assortments of Thomas the Train track configurations, forts inside and outside the home. Even now, my sons are helping me finish a basement project and enjoy learning new tools and skills. One of our children's Bible storybooks has a creation account that begins, do you like to make things? God likes to make things. But to make something, we need a design, an end, a purpose. We live in an age that lacks purpose. People are on a journey without a clear destination. Any common definition of human flourishing is laughed at, mocked, or dismissed amongst an increasing diversity of expressions of self-fulfillment. 
the aimlessness of our time, lacking in foundations of truth, injustice, and morality, has had devastating consequences on the cheapening of human life. It's been disappointing to me that during this pandemic, with all the zeal for protecting vulnerable lives, and rightly so, other lives have gone overlooked. Abortion continues on as an essential work. Cancer screenings are are dismissed. Mental health goes unchecked. Students at home online learn very little, especially if they are English language learners. Small businesses shudder, and so do their owners. Many people's livelihoods have been put on the back burner. We await the full extent of the carnage to be revealed when the dust and the virus settles. Psalm 127 captures a biblical vision of human flourishing centered around ideas of building and security, of people multiplying and leaving a heritage. God values life from conception to natural death. My aim is to approach our passage backwards, beginning with verses 3, and f- three through 5 and moving on to 2 within verse 1. Our text affirms the Bible's positive view of children, the promise of God's provision, and the purpose for God's people. Verse 3 says that children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a reward, not a punishment. They are a gift. And so, so some gifts can be returned and exchanged, not children. They are keepers to be treasured and valued. The heartache, heartache of the barren matriarchs in the Bible, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah, speaks to the very good and God-given desire to bear children. The Bible does not reflect our culture's war on children. They are not merely another mouth to feed. They are not carbon footprints. As parents of all ages can confirm, raising children has its challenges. We lose sleep when they are young, when they're learning to drive. But in the long run, the benefits far outweigh the cost. And the reward is coming for those in the thick of training children in those younger years. Verse 4 compares children to an arrow in the hand of a warrior. Arrows don't simply grow out of the ground or grow on trees. They begin as sticks. They have to be carved and shaped into a long, straight shaft. They begin as stones that must be chipped in order to come to a sharp and effective point. Likewise, children must be trained to hit the mark. Sin literally means to miss the mark using the terms of archery. Children are not fish or alligators that merely hatch and intuitively know what to do and where to go. They need instruction. I appreciate commentator Derek Kidner's word on this front. And it is not untypical of God's gifts that they first are liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. My wife would say amen to that. 
Verse 5 continues with the archery analogy, saying, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. During the violent and vulnerable days of ancient Israel, having lots of children served the purpose of more than just bringing in the crops, but also standing as a measure of defense beside aged parents when threatened. God commanded our first parents to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. God wants the world full of his image bearers that reflect back to him his glory. Israel experienced grievous hardship as slaves in Egypt and yet multiplied nonetheless, so much so that it brought fear and terror to Pharaoh, whom he and his minions instituted a policy of murderous rage against Hebrew baby boys. Centuries later, in exile in Babylon, the exiles receive a letter from Jeremiah the prophet, himself childless, who instructed them to increase, to not decrease, to build houses and to plant vineyards, to pray for the city and its welfare, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. May we do the same in these trying times. Some historians estimate that the Jews made up some 10% of the Mediterranean Roman Empire in the century that Jesus was born. Their commitment to strong marriage and children enabled them to influence the empire in remarkable ways and enabled the Christian gospel to go forth with little hindrance. In those days, Roman emperors tried in vain to induce their own nobles to produce more children. But sexual immorality and materialistic greed and corruption contributed to the declining birth rates of the Romans. Until centuries later, it was all too easy for the barbarians to sack Rome in 410 AD. There just were not enough men or will to defend the city. It's my conviction that world overpopulation concerns are largely overblown. The real threat in the coming century seems to be declined, at least along the first world. God-fearing Muslims and Christians and Hindus contribute greatly to keep birth rates stable. To the chagrin of secularists, actually making the world more religious, not less. But more, but there's more to it than keeping quivers full of bearing children. We are called to serve them. Jesus and Paul, both single men not called to marriage or bearing children, validate the faithful servant in spreading and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the children of the world. We're blessed in this building every week with a woman in her 80s who teaches in our elementary school public outreach ministry. Every week, I have the privilege of driving six Congolese children to our Wednesday tutoring program. They are the youngest of 11 in their family who arrived not yet two years ago. Back in Africa, they suffered the tragic loss of their mother who died shortly after the youngest was born. One of our refugee ministry leaders remarked recently that she must have been an amazing woman. The children are just lovely, kind, helping one another, eager to learn, grateful. I get thanked every time I drive them home by an older sibling. 
Their father is being trained as an elder by Dr. Mora to help lead the Swahili community. And half a world away from us, in a different part of Africa from where most of our refugees are from, there is the family I mentioned before the prayer, who are serving there to lead a Bible translation effort to reach a large unreached people group. And we received not two weeks ago the sad news that their sixth child did not make it out of the womb alive at 35 weeks. Her heart stopped, and she was stillborn. Burying a child on the mission field is a gut-wrenching ordeal. My wife and I have two other friends who have done the same. It comes at a great cost. And yet, by the wisdom and redeeming grace of God, somehow the hearts of such families are wed to the field and the people they've been called to serve. Every life is precious. And by the power of the gospel, life emerges out of death. As Jesus testifies in the parable of the seed and by his own death and resurrection. Death sometimes is the means by which ministry fruit is born. Against a culture of death, we must stand for life. We must give voice to the voiceless. There is much talk these days about oppression, and oppression is very real. Racism is very real. In a world under the oppression of sin and the judgment to come. And so our first response to such oppression is to bring relief and rescue and hope through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That all people must be delivered from the oppression of sin and death and the judgment to come. But we also have a task of advocating for those who are most vulnerable. And I ask you, Who is more vulnerable and more voiceless than the preborn? In 2019, in our own state, there were 31,000 abortions, one in five of all pregnancies. 44% were performed on black women, half were done around the city of Philadelphia. Our work is great. And it doesn't end by merely helping women in crisis to turn away from death, but to assist them to support them as they raise children in the fear of the Lord, to help make choosing life less burdensome. Our compassion is not even limited to those who choose life, but even extends to those who have ended their pregnancies and suffer the physical, emotional consequences, to offer to them the forgiveness and the healing that only the gospel brings to such deep wounds. And our work is not finished there. But to speak against physician-assisted suicide, speak and take action against genocide to help bring deliverance to 40 million people enslaved in global sex trafficking, to help provide homes and refuge for 25 million refugees worldwide, and to labor to reach the some 3 billion people worldwide that have no access to the gospel, some 40% of the world's population all under the oppression of sin. And wherever else we might find the assault against human dignity and the sanctity of human life. And these statistics, these numbers can be overwhelming. 
and you can't do everything, but everyone can do something by faith and for the glory of God. So secondly, the Bible's promise of God's provision. One of the arguments in favor of abortion and euthanasia is that these people are a drain on limited resources. The same arguments were used to justify horrific mass murders in the mid-20th century committed by Stalin and Mao and other tyrannical regimes. People are given the authority by God to regulate deer populations, grazing animals and predators, but not to have the prerogative to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down like a Roman emperor to decide who lives and who dies. Verses 1 and 2 echo the biblical theme that God promises to provide for his people. The earth was designed to support human life. The second half of verse 1 and verse 2 speak to security and labor. No nation or household can flourish without both. Nor can men alone provide these things without God's help. All is in vain without the Lord. God is the ultimate provider of our security and sustenance. We live in a fallen world with dangerous threats and difficult toil. Every nation, community, and family must be engaged to ward off hunger and harm. But the Lord gives profit to and rest, a peace of mind to those who trust him. The Lord made the earth, intending his people to fill it, to provide resources to sustain us, granting that people are good stewards, that exercise justice and righteousness. For where these things are lacking, we do find hunger and want, poverty and war, and other horrific assaults on human dignity. The women who have been rescued from trafficking that we support at the North Star Harbor House have unbearable stories of assault. Many of the refugees that come into our own building have seen trauma and bloodshed that most of us cannot possibly imagine. All of these unnecessary barbaric acts of human selfishness and unbelief are rebellion against our Maker. And yet, by the power of the gospel, God is providing for these victims. He uses the gospel and he uses his people to show them that he is the God of plenty. He is the generous God who offers real hope and the healing balm of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospels present Jesus as a defender of the oppressed, who rebuked abusive authorities, who would keep the wrong people out of his father's house and synagogues. The disciples were amazed that Jesus actually cared about the poor, the disabled, women, children, minorities, people whom they hadn't given much thought to, sharing the bias with their fellow Jews in a Roman society. But then an event that shocked the disciples to their core was when they found the master asleep on the back of a boat in the midst of a life-threatening storm. They awakened Jesus who simply stood and calmed the storm by the word of his power. They did not know fear until that moment. Compassion with power. We desire security and sleep, calm and peace, confidence and hope. And none of these things come through the designs and schemes of men. 
There is no citadel made by man that has not been eventually overthrown by enemies. There is no business plan or government program that can guarantee success. The world is filled with failed policies. One child, eugenics, forced sterilization. There are many flawed economic views that see humans as primarily consumers rather than primarily producers, failing to give credit to the incredible ingenuity and productivity of people made in God's image who can make wealth and generously share it with others. We find ourselves surrounded, in, whether from religious sources or irreligious sources, by functional atheists pretending to play God, refusing to trust in his provision. The materialist worldview has no absolutes, no meaning, no clear purpose, and no guarantee that we have enough. No wonder so many people are in despair and cynical. The secular offers no compelling vision for human flourishing. But God speaks to the anxiety of every human heart. The God who provided for the widow in Elijah's day with a flour jar and an oil jug that did not go empty, who fed the five thousand provides for those who trust in him and he provides something far greater than our daily bread the very salvation of our souls the lord sent his son to secure what we need most the forgiveness of our sins peace with god a secure future dignity and purpose for all people to thrive Thirdly, the Bible's purpose for God's people. Verse 1 tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Well, what is the Lord building? In Solomon's day, it was a temple, and it was glorious until it was destroyed. Punishment for Israel's idolatry and rebellion. Later, Jesus challenges enemies, destroy this temple, and I will raise it on three days. That only made them want to kill him all the more. And they did so. Where three days later, he demonstrated his power over sin and death by rising from the grave. His body is the Lord's temple. And you and I, by faith, are his body and a living temple. That God is building a spiritual house. And he wants it filled with members from all backgrounds, every tribe, nation, and tongue. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis offers this helpful analogy. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, 
putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. We all experience growing pains. As we follow Christ, as we grow to understand what God is about, and the beauty of the gospel is that he not only welcomes us, he comes in to renovate us, to dwell within us, to make us his ambassadors to welcome others, to affirm the dignity of every human person created and redeemed in the image of Christ. A general contractor takes charge of the building plans, works with the architect and the owner to complete the project. And he usually hires subcontractors to get the work done, excavators and framers, plumbers and electricians, roofers, drywallers, and finishers. They all have a part to play. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. God is not only the architect, he is the general contractor. And we are his subcontractors. We have gifts. We have a part to play, whether it's preaching or teaching or education or mercy ministries or outreach or advocacy, missions and training of all sorts. The work will go on until it is complete. And he dignifies us and calls people from all backgrounds to take part in this great work. And so may we continue faithfully until that work is completed, until the master finally says, it is finished. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, what an honor it is to be made in your image, to be redeemed in the likeness of Christ, to be called as a co-laborer, as a subcontractor in this great work of building a great spiritual house for all peoples. And we pray that you might use us in the cause of the gospel, in the cause of bringing the redeemed in from every nation, tribe, and tongue, for the cause of ending injustice, oppression, and evil across this fallen world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. May you lead us and equip us to serve in ways to honor and please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.